So this morning we're going to be continuing in Colossians chapter 2, uh, beginning at verse 8, which is where Owen left off last week. But before we start, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Lord, we just thank you for this time of worship we've had, of uh, worshiping you in song, Lord. And as we go into your word, we just resolve to continue to worship you and just ask you would lead uh, direct this time, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would uh, instruct us, Lord. Uh, just pray you'd move me out of the way, Lord, and uh, deliver the message you want brought this morning. And on our parts, Lord, we would just uh, clear our minds of distractions, worries, and cares, and focus this time on you. Thank you for your written word. Thank you for your faithful servant, Paul, as we uh, follow his uh, teaching that he recorded in the, in the book of Colossians. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 15 uh, this morning, uh, which deals with the we are built up in Christ. And Owen, uh, I believe, read this Uh, last week as well, or at least a portion of this, but he concentrated on verses 6 and 7 last Sunday, which introduced that concept of being built up in Christ. So we're going to pick up at verse 8, which uh, starts by cautioning against false teaching in uh, in somewhat general terms. Paul's rebuking of false teaching was one of the key topics we considered when we overviewed the book of Colossians during our May 1st, 2022 service. And we looked at things and there's a strong emphasis on Paul's part about dealing with false teaching. But in today's passage, Paul is using his teaching method of compare and contrast to expose false teaching. His focus is to show us what to avoid while encouraging us to be grounded in Christ. And although today's expository message is centered around a group of verses that are being presented in context, it's still subject to errors being contributed by me because I'm, I'm a sinful man and uh, we're handling God's word and those of us that uh, uh, speak from God's word need to be cautious and never to get too comfortable with it and to always keep in mind that uh, there's an awesome responsibility in, the, uh, in that aspect of speaking, speaking about God's word. So I would ask you, as we uh, systematically approach this passage of scripture, and we're not gonna skip over things, is just please be a Berean. And we've talked about that a number of times. Uh, in Acts 17, um, verses 10 and 11, it described what the believers at Berea did, but they were described as being more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So the Bereans were commended for their actions of using, using the word of God as a filter to look at everything they were being taught. And we need to follow that example. And we're encouraged to follow that example. But let's read uh, the greater passage for this morning. It's Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15. And then we're going to concentrate on uh, a few of those verses Beginning at verse 8, See to it that there is no one who takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception in accordance with human tradition, in accordance with the elementary principles of the world, 
rather than in accordance with Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you've been made complete. He is the head over every ruler and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision performed without hands. The removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your wrongdoings and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our wrongdoings, having canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he is taken out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So let's go back, and we're going to spend some time looking at verse 8. And many times as when you prepare messages, they don't quite come out the way you thought they were going to, and that's certainly the case this morning for myself. I thought when I talked with Owen about this, I'd be getting to uh, look at the false teaching, but I ended up uh, spending a lot of time in verse 8 in particular because there's so much teaching loaded into this one verse. It really reflects... Paul's writing of the book of Colossians, which is a short book, but there's a lot of teaching uh, compacted in here. So as we see in verse 8, we'll reread it. See to it, there is no one who takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception in accordance with human traditions, in accordance with the elementary principles of the world, rather than in accordance with Christ. So we see here, false teaching is a trap. I mean, the phrase there, who takes you captive, I mean, we, I, hadn't, I guess I hadn't quite thought of it that way before, is that false teaching is actually a, uh, literally a trap. Uh, and there's different, different means that you can be entrapped by false teaching, which we're going to look at a few of those. But the contrast of that is freedom. And so freedom comes from following Christ. False teaching uh, imprisons you. You're captive. So Paul highlights three components of false teaching. Um, Commentators suggest that the following of philosophy can take three paths. So this is the first of uh, Paul's three components. That's philosophy. And so uh, one definition of that is that it's the lukewarm following of some of the principles of Christianity as a philosophy rather than as a Christ-centered, focused way of work, uh, of life. Excuse me, not works. So... um, that is actually expounded on by Jesus in the book Revelation where he describes the church at Laodicea as being lukewarm and he wants to spew them out of or vomit them out of his mouth because they're lukewarm. They're not serious. They know some of the principles of Christianity and we can see that a lot in our world. A lot of people know who God is, who Jesus is, the Holy Spirit, but are they really living that or is it just a philosophy, that a lifestyle that they're going to live and uh, say, yeah, this isn't, this isn't a bad way to live, but I'm not going to fully commit. I think Ray touched on that in his message to the children, is it's, it's something you have to be fully committed to. It has to be the center of your life. Another aspect of philosophy is, uh, at this time, would be embracing the intellectual influence of Greek philosophy, and that would be philosophers like Socrates and Plato, very wise men, but their philosophy was not grounded in God. It was grounded in the world. 
And then the third component of uh, being entrapped by philosophy is blending the two together, this lukewarm feeling of Christianity and bringing in this aspect of worldly philosophy. Uh, and actually, that's what the Gnostics did at this, at this time, and it's, it's still done in our time. So it's not a new uh, concept when we see it in our world. As Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. <clears throat> so we need to be cautious about philosophy. Yes, we need to embrace the philosophy of Christianity, but we have to live it, not just uh, having a lukewarm following of it. So the second component that Paul talks about in verse 8 is empty deception in accordance with human traditions. And this is likely referring to Jewish traditions um, which Jesus addressed in the Gospel of Mark. So if you would turn with me to Mark chapter 7, we have kind of a long passage we're going to look at here, verses 1 through 13. Mark 7. Mark 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered to him after they came from Jerusalem and saw that some of his disciples were eating their bread with unholy hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the other Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thereby holding firmly to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they completely cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received as traditions to firmly hold, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and copper pots. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk in accordance with the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unholy hands? Let's stop there for a minute. So think about this question that the Pharisees asked Jesus. What's their motive behind this? Are they looking for truth? No, they're looking to trap Jesus with their traditions. I mean, they're saying, look, we have this tradition and you, you guys are flaunting that. And so you're going to see Jesus is going to respond fairly abruptly to this because he sees the heart. Jesus does. He looks in and he sees the heart, sees our heart, and he sees the heart of these Pharisees, what the basis for their question is. Let's pick up at verse 6. <clears throat> but he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the traditions of men. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And the one who speaks evil of father and mother is certainly to be put to death. But you say, if a person says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is, given to God. You no longer allow him to do anything for his father or his mother, thereby invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. So this aspect of Corban, I think, is... Jesus explains it fairly well here, but that was used as a means for, for people to hang on to their wealth instead of supporting their parents in their old age, which was the, was the intention, not that the church should do that, but the family should do that. Um, they, had a, they had an out. They could say, well, 
I'd really like to help you, Mom and Dad, but I've got this money and it's set aside to the Lord. Now, it, doesn't, it didn't mean they were going to use it for the Lord, but they'd set it aside. And so they were using this loophole of the traditions to violate God's law. And that's why, that's why Jesus is so abrupt with them in this passage. So that's that aspect of traditions that Paul is talking about. The third aspect he talks about in verse 8 is the elementary principles of the world. And so it's noted in, uh, in commentary, this is Olicott's commentary for English readers, and in the book of Galatians that Paul uses the same phrase to refer to the Mosaic law. And so we'll look at the commentary first. Keep in mind this is not scripture, this is a man's, one man's opinion about what's, uh, what's going on here. So Olicott's commentary reads, this, is the chief, this marks the chief point of contact with earlier Judaism in the stress still laid, perhaps with less consistency on matters of ritual, law, ascetic observance, and the like. These are of the world, in other words, belonging to the visible sphere and their rudiments, fit only for the elementary education of those who are children and attended simply as a preparation for higher teaching. So we see these elementary principles of the world are not necessarily wrong, but they're a starting point or a beginning, much like uh, a child being in elementary school and then, and then moving on. But let's look at Scripture, Galatians 4, verses 1 through 5. If you'd turn there with me, please. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4, verse 1. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So we too, when we were children, were held in bondage under the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law and that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. <clears throat> so we see Paul again uh, dealing with this, with this concept of the uh, Mosaic law here in the book, in the book of Galatians. And the uh, content of these two components that Paul illustrated in Colossians 2 verse 8, these last two components, shows that Paul is concerned about the influence of Judaizers in the church at Colossae. And, um, rather than, uh, and we see this particular in the phrase he uses, rather in accordance with Christ, ends this verse, and it, ends that it indicates that the wrong path is being followed. Um, Paul twice uses the phrase in accordance with, in, this, in verse 8, to uh, link and contrast the danger of only following the law and rejecting Christ, as the Pharisees were doing, instead of moving forward with the law and following Christ. So let's think about that. I mean, the law is not wrong. You need to follow the law, but you can't reject Christ. Like dedicate yourself to works, elementary principles, and then not, not accepting Christ. That's the completion of it. And... Uh, that's moving forward, and this is a God-ordained progression, as Christ himself pointed out in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, 
We're going to look at verses 17 and 18. And this is uh, Jesus' perspective on the law. And certainly the, the Pharisees, the religious elite of the time, thought that Jesus had come to turn their world upside down, and he had. But he didn't come to throw the law away or to destroy the law. He'd come for a different purpose. We see in verse 17, Do not presume that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. So we see a strong emphasis by Jesus on the importance of the law and the permanence of it. I mean, we might think in this day and time, well, the law doesn't apply to us anymore. That isn't what Jesus is saying here. But it's that that idea of blending, blending the law with Jesus and to follow and to follow Jesus' path, which He shows us, He shows us in the Word. But uh, coming back to looking at this verse, Paul has enclosed so much teaching in this one verse, and uh, we've carefully and closely examined it. But let's move to the next pair of verses, and uh, hopefully, I didn't create any confusion here. That's not the intent. But to look at this carefully and to see what does Paul mean. Uh, what, is he, what is he saying here? Well, let's move forward into Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10. And this is the mystery of the Godhead. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Verse 10, and in him you have been made complete. He is head over every ruler and authority. So this is a Verse 9 in particular is a very short verse, Um, but uh, thinking about it a little bit more uh, deeply, many of us struggle with understanding the concept of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit functioning as a triune God. And uh, I think it was Owen might have uh, joked with our our speaker about maybe you're going to explain that, explain that to us in the seminars that we had so we would all fully understand that. So don't don't feel alone if you don't fully understand and if you fully understand the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, praise God, uh, because it is a, it's a difficult thing for us to grasp. But verse 9 gives us some additional insight in this, uh, even though it's very short, but it's a difficult concept for us to grasp. If you look at, look at the words in verse 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Um, the complete fullness, other translations render the word deity as Godhead. So the complete or fullness of the Godhead or deity lives in the body of Jesus. And that's a difficult thing. I I had a hard time wrapping my head around it. One of the things that helped me was a commentator had talked about this is like a tabernacle, the tabernacle principle where God God indwells the tabernacle with Jesus' body being the, being the tabernacle. So this is a difficult verse for us to fully understand, and so the temptation is to skip over it. I mean, quite frankly, is like read, read through it and say, okay, now I'm going on to verse 10. <clears throat> but uh, we don't do that. I mean, we want, to look at, we want to look at things carefully and see if we can understand what God is trying to teach us here. But the other side of it, uh, 
I mean, one side being to skip it, the other side is to get bogged down in it and try to make a doctrinal statement about this. And commentators, I mean, I, won't, I don't want to say they rage, but I mean, there's definitely a conflict between commentators on what this, what this means. And so, uh, we will spend some time here, but we'll look, we'll look to the Lord to teach us all what this means. But that word translated as deity or Godhead is not used anywhere else in the Bible. It's only here in Colossians. So again, in this sh- very short book, there's an important teaching being uh, chronicled here by Paul. We don't really have any other verses to look for parallel context because the word uh, for deity isn't used anywhere else. Um, so uh, we're going to look at some commentary, and again, this isn't scripture to help us define what this means. Strong's Concordance and Helps Work Studies provides some non-scriptural insight into this verse. So the word that is used here is theodes, and the definition is deity, but the usage is for deity or Godhead. I know in the King James Version they use the word Godhead. Deity is used in the New American Standard. Uh, helps Work Studies um, which this, uh, that's uh, some studies that are published by a Discovery Bible. Um, Theodos is fullness of deity and it expresses God's essential deity as belonging to Christ. It also focuses on Christ physically embodying the Godhead through his incarnation and shown through his perfect life of faith as shown in Hebrew, Hebrews 12.2. So again, Let's not take too much of that. Maybe it can help us, help us to understand, but it is not Scripture. And we might, uh, we might struggle with these concepts, but we can take comfort in the fact we're not the only ones because um, we see Jesus discussing this with his apostles in the Gospel of John. So if you turn with me to John chapter 14, we're going to look at verses 7 through 11. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. <clears throat> Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Let's stop there for a minute and think it's, it's actually a remarkable statement that's there and it just shows, um, I think Ray, you might have touched on that aspect of patience, what patience God has because he's just explained in verse 7, if you'd known me, you'd known the Father also. For now on you know him and you see me. And the first thing Philip says is, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And I'm sure Jesus, I mean, you think like, wow, aren't you listening? And, <laughs> but uh, he's so patient with Philip and he's so patient with us. Because so many times I know uh, the Lord could say that to me, Wes, aren't you listening? <laughs> so Jesus said to him, have I been with you for so long a time, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip. The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father, as he remains in me, does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise believe because of the works themselves. Let's drop down to verse 16. 
I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, so that he may be with you forever. The helper is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he remains with you and will be in you. So in this relatively short passage in John, we see the Trinity and teaching on the Trinity being, uh, being provided by Jesus and trying to help his apostles understand. And uh, I don't know, did they, did they ever fully understand this? I, I, I don't know the answer to that. But it's, it's difficult for us as uh, mere human beings to understand God and the Godhead. So this probably is still not clear in our minds. So let's look to the Holy Spirit to further, further illuminate verse nine. Let's just pray on this and consider what this, what this means and let God uh, reveal this to us. We're gonna move on to verse 10. Colossians 2:10. And in him you have been made complete, and he is, he is the head over all rule and authority. <clears throat> so just as Jesus is complete in his union with the Godhead, which we've been looking at in verse 9, Paul now extrapolates, we are complete in our union with Jesus. <clears throat> and so we need nothing else. I mean, it's very, it's very simple. We don't need an experience. We don't need mystical teaching or anything else. Jesus is enough. That's all we need. And it's, it's uh, that sounds almost demeaning, that's all we need, but I mean, it is. It is, it's, it's all about Jesus. And, and the principles of, well, we gotta add something else in. We, you know, we, don't we need this or we need that? It's like, none of that. Jesus is enough. So Paul's setting the groundwork for his later teaching about rejecting mysticism here in this verse. Um, in his completeness, Jesus is supreme over worldly and angelic hosts. However, we're gonna stop today in terms of the uh, in-depth looking at these verses um, to process and consider the teaching contained in the three verses that we explored. So let's pray on this and, and think about this. But before we close, let's overview those verses that remained in today's passage. And this is not a thorough examination of these. In verses uh, 13 through 15, well, let's, we'll read those again. And when you were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So in verses 11 through 13, we see there's much more to consider as Paul shows us the true meaning of circumcision and baptism. We looked at it and um, actually skipped those two verses. Let me back up and hit those again. And in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you're also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So we see these, um, 
these principles or these, these elementary teachings of circumcision and baptism have a deeper meaning. And Paul, uh, Paul touches on that here briefly as he's going through and discussing them. And I'm sure uh, as others continue through Colossians, they're going to develop, develop this a bit more. But in verse 14, the description of how Jesus paid the debts for our sins reminds me of uh, one of Paul Mello's favorite topics, which was Tetelestai. If you look at the uh, uh, verse 14 again, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, he's taken out of the way having nailed it to the cross. And so the principle that's being illustrated here is the, the debt, the debt of sin that we had, Jesus paid for it. And in... Um, in their society, when a debt was paid, it would be, it would be posted on a sign and nailed, um, maybe to a door frame or some other, a, a post or someplace in public. Well, in this case, Jesus took our sins and he nailed them to the cross. That's tetelestai, paid in full. That principle of nothing else is required, it's finished, fully paid for. So in verse 15, Paul closes this passage of scripture after clearly establishing the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. And then having established this foundation in Christ, Paul is going to refute false teaching as being inadequate. And we'll see that in the, in the weeks ahead. So in concluding, it was a very daunting, humbly look to, uh, humbling task to explore the teaching contained in these few verses in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Um, it's very, there's very, it's very deep waters as we, as, we look at these, as we look at these verses. So my hope and prayer is that these concepts uh, will become clearer to you in the weeks ahead as we further explore this beautiful and compact message that Paul recorded for us in Colossians and God spoke, spoke out through Paul. In the weeks ahead, we'll be further exploring the false teaching that was prevalent in the church at Colossae. Uh, when we overviewed the book of Colossians, we discussed those four aspects of false teaching, and they were, we'll look at those one more time. They were philosophy, which we spent some time looking at that this morning. That was in Colossians 2.8. That's the Greek influence. And it's a philosophy, an empty deception, human tradition, and elementary principles of the world were some key, key words out of that verse. Uh, Colossians 2.16 is legalism. This is the influence of the Judaizers. We also see some of that in verse 8. But in verse 16, it's more uh, clear-cut. Paul refers to food and drink, a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. In uh, Colossians 2.18, Paul takes on mysticism. He describes false teachers that have new insights. And specifically, Paul says the worship of angels and taking his stand on visions he has seen. Uh, lastly is asceticism, which is in Colossians 2.23, and that is suffering as a false path to righteousness. And Paul states in that verse, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and humility and severe treatment of the body. So unfortunately, many of these false teachings or variations of these teachings are still active in the churches and in society today. This isn't, this isn't something ancient that the book closed in, uh, in Colossae and it's, this no longer exists. It's very, very much alive and well. So Paul shows us how to not be caught up in false teachings 
we're to avoid new prophecies and revelations, and we're to stay grounded in Christ and his word. Lord, we thank you for this time we had today in your word, Lord, and uh, just the richness of your word, Lord. I'm, I'm humbled by, by how much there is here, Lord, and just, uh, I just pray that as we looked at this, Lord, uh, that those things that were not of you would, be, would just drop, fall away, Lord. We would leave those here, and we would leave with the essence of you, what you want to taught, Lord, and you would just continue to reveal, to work in us, Lord, through the Holy Spirit to help us to understand some of these deep principles. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.